introduce our preacher in just a moment, but this is a reminder for children age 4 to 11 are invited to go to the back through the middle doors uh, to meet your teachers for your special lesson. Um, Everyone else, please be seated, and the children can start working your way back. It's my privilege to introduce our guest preacher. Uh, He is Bishop of the Diocese of the Mid-Atlantic. He is my dad. Um, but, but let's be honest, the main reason he accepted this invitation is he got to come see his grandkids. So I, I know my priority list. So with that, Dad, would you come on up? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would speak your word to us. That we would hear your word. And it would bear fruit in our lives, all to your honor and glory. Jesus' name and for his sake we pray. Amen. Thanks, Michael. Well, good morning. It is such a joy for my wife Meg and be here today. Thank you for welcoming and taking such good care of our family. Um, And your grace, thank you for the invitation to share in this very special day. On the game show... Family Feud, host Steve Harvey asked contestants to provide the top answers 100 people gave to the following survey question. When someone mentions the king, to whom might he or she be referring? Here are the four top answers. Survey says, two people said the Burger King. Three people said Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Seven people said God or Jesus. Eighty-one people said Elvis Presley. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to 21st century America. Well, today is Christ the King Sunday. The day in the church year when we particularly celebrate Jesus' rule and reign over us, over his church, and indeed over the whole created universe. Jesus is Lord. He is God. He is the King. He is the King crowned with thorns. He's the King enthroned on a cross. And the implications of Jesus' kingship are profound. But this morning, just three points. Because Jesus is king, we know who wins. Because Jesus is king, he's the one we obey. And because Jesus is king, he is the judge. So first, because Jesus is king, we know who wins. Daniel chapter 7, verse 14. And to him... The one like a son of man, that is Jesus, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. I know an avid football fan who lives in Hawaii. When his favorite team is playing on Monday night football because of the time difference kickoff comes on in the middle of the afternoon. But for all those years when Monday night football was on ABC, the local ABC affiliate delayed the broadcast until prime time in the evening. 
Now, he's a serious fan, so of course he couldn't wait. So he'd listen to the game on the radio live in the afternoon, and then that evening he'd also watch the game on television. Now, if he knew his team had won the game, it influenced how he'd watch it on TV. If his team fumbled the ball or threw an interception, he'd keep it in perspective because that's bad, he'd think, but it's okay because in the end, we win. Well, when I'm going through hard times, I find myself saying over and over again, Jesus is still on the throne, meaning Jesus is king. When I was waiting for test results over possible cancer, I would say either way, Jesus is still on the throne. Going into an election, I'd say to myself, no matter who wins, Jesus will still be on the throne. Jesus rules in heaven. He rules over all creation. And nothing that has happened has surprised him or defeated him. His will and plan for our lives will not be thwarted if we continue to trust in him. In the end, he wins. And so will you and I who belong to him. Jesus told his disciples, I've said these things to you so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. My dear mother-in-law, Michael's beloved grandmother, was physically disabled all her life. She had rickets as a young girl, and her legs were so badly bowed that she had had to have a number of major surgeries to make it possible even for her to walk. When I first met her, she was getting around slowly on a cane. But over the years, she went from a cane to a quad cane to two canes to a walker to a wheelchair to being bedbound. She lived with us for the last 20 years of her life. And I know that she praised God until her last breath at age 86. One of my most treasured memories of her is seeing her in the second pew of our church with her twisted arthritic hands lifted in praise to her Lord. She knew that Jesus is on the throne. And she knew that no matter what she was experiencing, Jesus would carry her through. The less she was able to get about, the more powerful she became as an intercessor. Even as she declined physically, she only grew spiritually. No matter what you're going through, disappointment or loss or pain or hardship, knowing the final outcome makes all the difference. Jesus is king and we are his and nothing. Nothing can separate us from him. Because Jesus is king, we know who wins. And in his victory, we can have supernatural peace. Second, because Jesus is king, he's the one we obey. Revelation chapter 1 verse 5 says that Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. He's king over all kings, Lord over all lords. Jesus is in charge, and he calls us to follow him without condition, without equivocation. 
He told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. In the Roman world, if you took up the cross, there was only one destination, the place of execution. To take up one's cross means to give up everything, even one's very life. Jesus is leaving no room for holding back, for hedging, for bargaining. We can't say we've surrendered to Jesus if he's not first in our lives, if we're not willing to sacrifice everything else, even the things we hold most precious in life, to suffer loss, humiliation, even death. It was Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German pastor and theologian executed by Hitler, who put it so simply and so powerfully. He said, salvation is free, but discipleship will cost you your life. Jesus explains why this is true and why it's good news. He said, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? But the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. The path of God's blessing, Jesus is telling us, lies in hearing the Lord and following. And that's where the problems start. You and I want to consider God's commands, we take them under advisement. And then we decide for ourselves whether or not we want to do what he's told us to do. And if what he tells us isn't exactly what we want to do, we'll do some creative substituting of our own preferences for the Lord's directions. In other words, we want the joy and the blessing of the abundant life that Jesus promises, but we want to achieve it by doing what we want to do. A woman named Runa Ware was quite well known in her town as a cook. A friend of hers had lunch in Runa's house one day, and Runa served an exquisite crab meat casserole. The friend raved about it and then begged and begged to be given the recipe. Runa finally gave in and let her friend have the secret to this magnificent dish. Well, sometime later, the friend had a party and invited Runa to attend. Runa arrived a little late, and her friend greeted her at the door, and as she escorted her through the house to the dining room where the guests were already gathered at the table, she whispered to Runa, I'm serving your crab meat casserole today. But you know that delicate white sauce in your recipe? That just seemed too complicated. So I substituted Campbell's mushroom soup. <laughs> I didn't have any of that dry sherry, so I just left that out. And the store didn't have any fresh crab meat, so I just used canned tuna fish instead. <laughs> and then before, before Runa could say a word, she walked into the dining room and announced, the casserole today is Runa Ware's recipe, so if you don't like it, blame her. <laughs> How often we do that with God. We receive his plan for the abundant life, and then we start substituting our own preferences. 
making excuses for not living life God's way. And then when things don't work out the way we wanted, we blame God. Jesus calls us to go immediately to someone we've hurt and ask for forgiveness. But that seems too costly, too humbling. So we substitute our own recipe of just trying to be a little nicer next time. Jesus calls us to tithe, to give freely to those in need. We know that would require us to change our lifestyle, so we substitute our own formula of just giving till it hurts. The problem, of course, is that most of us have a remarkably low threshold for pain. <laughs> Jesus calls us to live in holiness and sexual purity, but so many prefer the counterfeit intimacy of internet porn and substitute their own standards. Jesus calls us to set aside time each day for prayer and his word, but we set our own priorities with him all too often near the bottom. Deep inside, we are torn and divided. We want to be committed to God to a reasonable degree. Yet it's this little bit of commitment that's just enough to bother our conscience. We want a glimpse of eternal life, but not so much that it might seriously disturb us or cause us to make an about face. We want to be committed to Christ, but we don't want to turn completely away from the life that centers on me. That's halfway Christianity. Halfway Christianity says I want the joys of being a Christian, but I don't want to make the sacrifices that are required. Halfway Christianity says I want closeness to God without the discipline of prayer. I want insight and understanding without the priority for study of God's word. I want peace of mind without full repentance from sin. I want meaning in life without self-denying service of others. But everything that's offered to us as Christians, the joy, the release, the freedom, they come only with a surrender of ourselves, our wills, our habits. Friends, you know God's plan, God's recipe for the abundant life. Don't live with a halfway commitment. Don't miss the fullness of joy that's ours when we surrender ourselves wholeheartedly to the Lord and his will for us. Don't be one of those half hearted Christians who try to create their own seemingly reasonable middle way between hedonistic self-indulgence and radical commitment to Jesus. That's a pretty sure way to make yourself miserable. The only real commitment to Jesus is a total commitment. We cannot follow Jesus as king without making the turnaround in life that he demands of us. We can't have it both ways. We can't serve two masters. We can't have God's peace following our own path. Jesus tells his disciples again and again, the one who seeks to save his life will lose it. But the one who loses his life for my sake will save it. The way of the world is the way of self. The way of the cross is the path of commitment and sacrifice and renunciation. The path of humility and love and obedience the path of joyful service of others. Because Jesus is king, he's the one we are to obey. And third, because Jesus is king, he's the judge. John's Gospel, chapter 5, puts it this way. 
For the Father judges no one, but is given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. You know, sometimes Christians will talk about a time in their life when they'd made Jesus their Savior, but hadn't yet made him their Lord. What they mean by that is they wanted Jesus' forgiveness, but they weren't yet ready to let him be in charge of their life. They weren't willing to let him govern their life. A priest in my diocese wrote a book in which he points out that in addition to Jesus being our Savior and Lord, he must also be our judge. Too many people, he suggested, won't let Jesus be their judge. And one manifestation of that is heard when someone says, I know God forgives me, but I cannot forgive myself. Now, the idea of forgiving ourselves is well intended, to be sure. And it also expresses what a person struggling with guilt sometimes truly feels. But there are a number of problems with this, this idea, and I'd like to point to a better way. One, the Bible never tells us to forgive ourselves. It tells us to seek forgiveness from someone else we've hurt, but that's a very different thing. Two, saying God has forgiven me, but I haven't forgiven myself implies that I take my sin more seriously than God does. But all sin is sin against God. He is the one truly offended by my sin, not me. Three, saying I still need to forgive myself implies that Jesus dying on the cross for my sins was not enough. He had to die, and I have to feel rotten about it for a long period of time before I can be forgiven. And four, if I say I haven't forgiven myself, I've set myself up as the supreme judge instead of Jesus. If I haven't really accepted God's forgiveness, then my condemnation of myself overrules his forgiveness. And that means that I'm the real judge, not Jesus. And so instead of thinking I need to forgive myself, what I really need to do is humbly accept the forgiveness God offers me through Jesus. I don't know how closely you follow major political stories out of Washington, and you may have missed the news this week that the president, following established tradition, pardoned not one but two Thanksgiving turkeys named peas and carrots. Apparently, Pease won the initial vote, but Carrots demanded a recount. <laughs> now, of course, all this is a takeoff on the power the president has to pardon those convicted of serious crimes. But in U.S. history, not everyone whom the president granted a pardon to actually wanted one. In 1830, a man named George Wilson was convicted of a federal crime and sentenced to death. President Andrew Jackson issued a presidential pardon, but George Wilson refused to accept it. It was so shocking that anyone would reject a pardon that the case went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. Chief Justice John Marshall wrote the decision, and it included these, disciple, these insightful words which have profound spiritual implications as well. Justice Marshall wrote, a pardon is an act of grace which exempts the individual on whom it is bestowed from punishment. A pardon must be delivered, and delivery is not complete without acceptance.
A pardon may then be rejected by the person to whom it is tendered, and if it be rejected, we have discovered no power in a court to force it on him. It may be supposed that no being condemned to death would reject a pardon, but the rule must be the same. Jesus offers his unconditional pardon, his free gift of forgiveness, but I have to accept it. He doesn't force it on me. I have to admit my need for what he alone can do in my life. I need to let Jesus be my judge. The one whose verdict over my life I receive and accept. When I repent and he says I'm forgiven, then I am forgiven because Jesus is my judge. Some of us had the privilege of accompanying the Archbishop to Jerusalem last June for the Global Anglican Future Conference. It is so humbling to be with those who live in contexts where they're risking their lives daily to share Jesus among those who are so very hostile to Christianity. Once again, I was struck by that stark contrast with our own culture. In the global south, there is so little by way of material things, and yet there's great joy in the Lord, great passion for the gospel, great willingness to live sacrificially in obedience to Christ the King. But here, many are so full, so prosperous, and yet we are so empty. We're hungry for meaning, hungry for something worth living for, hungry even for something worth dying for. Jesus calls us to count the cost and follow him. Are we willing to pay the price, to lay down our lives and take up the cross to follow our king? One of my favorite stories is about the small country church that couldn't afford its own priest. They had to rely on guest preachers whenever they could manage to get one to come to their little congregation. One Sunday, they were able to arrange for a visiting preacher who arrived at the church very early before anyone else was there. The door was unlocked, so he went in and made himself at home. Um, he read everything that was on the bulletin board. He read all the tracks that were in the track rack. And then finally, he noticed on the back wall of the church, there was a, a box with a little slot on top. He figured it was for offerings for the poor, so he reached into his pocket, found a couple of quarters, and put them in the box. A little later, the senior warden arrived and introduced himself, and he said, we're so delighted to have you here today. He explained how they conducted the service and then left him to it. After the service, the senior warden came up to the preacher and said, wow, what a wonderful sermon. We wish we could have you as our preacher every Sunday, but we're a small country church and we don't have money even to pay our guest preachers but we have a system in our church we have this box over here and people put money in the box to pay our guest preachers and after your Jim Dandy sermon I know there's going to be a lot of money in that box so he takes out his little warden's key and goes and opens the box and out falls 50 cents exactly well it's all the guy could do not to laugh in his face so he gets home and he is regaling his family with this story over Sunday dinner and they're all roaring with laughter except his nine-year-old son who pops up and said, Dad, you don't understand. If you'd have put more in, 
you'd have gotten more out. <laughs> well, Jesus put it this way. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Or in other words, if you put more in, you'll get more out. My friends, if you've surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, then live it with your whole heart and mind and strength. He is the victorious king. So let's trust him and follow him in the way of the cross where we'll know his deepest joys, his deepest and greatest blessings. Now, Michael, I'd like to offer a charge to you. Would you please stand, and could I ask you to come out here where I can look at you? Thank you. <laughs> I have a passage of Scripture for you to take on as you assume the responsibility as dean of this cathedral. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning at verse 2, where the Apostle Paul said this about his ministry. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the spirit and of power. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I don't know if I've ever shared with you about the time I got a phone call early in my ministry, uh, a call in the middle of the night from a young couple who just had their first baby. Now, they knew they'd woken me up, but they were up and assumed that I would want to be and asked if I'd come to the hospital to celebrate with them. So, happily, off I went. Now, I knew enough not to stop at the desk and ask if I could visit someone at that hour, so I just walked right past the nursing station. As my big feet galumped down the darkened hall, the nurse at the desk heard me and looked up, and seeing this strange figure in the gloom of the hallway at two in the morning, she snapped her fingers and called out, Sir! Sir! And I stopped and turned around, and she saw my collar, and she said, Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were a man. <laughs> Never forget that you are a man. <laughs> and like the Apostle Paul, no matter how weak or inadequate you may know yourself to be, proclaim the cross of Jesus Christ. Proclaim the cross that the transforming grace of the gospel will may, be made known to you through you, made known to you and through you in the power of the Holy Spirit. Michael, we love you, we support you, and we pray the Lord's richest blessings on you and your family and your ministry this day and always. Amen. Amen.